Well, good morning again to you. We are continuing our series in the Psalms this morning with a bit of a twist. The sermon today will be a celebration of the God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God beyond all praising. That is, not, not beyond our praise in the sense of rendering it worthless, but beyond our praise in the sense that all of the most eloquent words that we might offer up do but capture the outskirt tiny corners of his magnificence, love, power, and glory. In concurrence with our present sermon series, most of my texts and examples will be from the Psalms. I want us to begin with an Old Testament reading and follow it with a New Testament reading. And while the sermon is not sort of primarily based on these two texts, I do believe that they will put us in the right frame of mind for the sermon. So we will begin with Psalm 139. Psalm 139, uh, beginning in verse 1. Page 680 or 18? 18. 18. All right, 618. Marvelous. In your pew Bibles. 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And listen to this especially. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Thus ends the Old Testament reading. I would now direct your attention to Romans chapter 11. The 11th chapter of Romans beginning at verse 33. And if someone finds it in the Pew Bible, you can call it out. Romans chapter 11 beginning in verse 33. 11.26, thank you, Anne. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. These are the words of the Lord. And again, we say, thanks be to God. I want to talk to you this morning about the doctrine of the Trinity. I will begin with this question, what is it? Well, Christians worship one God. We'll start there. Christians worship one God. This one God is triune. That is, He exists eternally as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is not made up of three parts like a three-leaf clover. He is not one thing at a time, like the way water can be ice or a liquid or steam, but only one at a time. He is not like a man with three roles or three jobs, like a dad, a husband, and an engineer. All three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in the great work of saving sinners. The Father elects us, the Son redeems us, The Holy Spirit awakens our heart and calls us to faith. Salvation is what the Father decided, what the Son purchased, and what the Holy Spirit applies. And so if you are a Christian, 
You are a Christian because the Father chose you, because the Son died for you, and because the Spirit regenerated you, gave you a new heart. And many of you know I happily adhere to a tradition of attempting to preach a sermon about the Trinity on Trinity Sunday for two reasons. One, I love the Trinity. It is, uh, the, the revelation of it is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. And two, one of my passions is helping people understand that while this is a high and mysterious doctrine, it is not so high and mysterious that it cannot be talked about. Okay? If you want to read a very accessible book about this, I'd recommend The Forgotten Trinity by James White. That's a great place to start. There's a quotation from it on the front of your bulletin, actually. But some people think of the Trinity this way. It's like uh, uh, the, the Trinity being so high and mysterious, we believe it, we just don't really talk about it that much. It's sort of like taxes and doing your taxes, right? It's a box you check every now and again because you have to check the box. And we know it's really important to check the box, but we don't really understand any of it. We make professionals understand it for us. We almost make jokes about how not understandable it is. And we chuckle a bit at anyone who would say that they have it understood. But you, dear brother, dear sister, can understand the Trinity. Not perfectly, not exhaustively, not in a way that allows you to let go of your wonder or awe or amazement. But all of us should be a good deal more ready to love and embrace and even understand the Trinity than perhaps we presently are. And so to that end, we confess the Athanasian Creed once a year. And to that end, I preach. Let us then proceed. The thing I want to say before we begin is that we are called to sing and called to know the God we sing about. We're called to sing to God and called to know the God we sing about. That's been the, one of the foundations for this whole series on the Psalms. This is why we sing the Psalms. As you have seen and heard throughout this series, the Psalms serve a number of different purposes. They give us words to sing. Of course, that's the obvious one. They give us words to pray. They teach us how to pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed together, is the supreme and superior example and model of prayer. The Psalms are also very helpful, additionally, in the good work of prayer. They teach us proper self-expression in various different phases and seasons of life and situations. The Psalms teach us proper worship in every season of life, as if to say, I'm happy, what does worship look like? I'm sad, what does worship look like? I'm despondent or depressed, what does worship look like? I'm afraid, what does worship look like? Right? But you can find the answer to those questions in the Psalms. The Psalms teach us what to do with our feelings, what to do with our affect, uh, affections, what to do with our afflictions, and even what to do with our enemies. So what do the Psalms call us to sing about? Well, if you could put that up on the screen, I think it's the next slide. Yeah, so there are three points to the sermon this morning. The Psalms teach us about a God who is beyond us, a God who loves us, and a God who is victorious. And I'm going to relate all three of these things back to our doctrine of the Trinity. Under each of those headings, God who is beyond us, God who loves us, God who is victorious, we're going to investigate three parts. So each of those bottom three are put them underneath one, two, and three. We're going to talk about the foundation of it, of that statement, statement one, statement two, statement three, the foundation of it, followed by the value of it, perhaps in apologetics or how we talk about it with each other or even how we talk about it with unbelievers. 
And then finally, how it moves us to worship, the, the doxology or the word for worship. So we'll begin then with a God who is beyond us and the, the foundations for that. The reality that our God is beyond us, beyond our ways, beyond our ways of thinking and, and reasoning is well attested in the scriptures and in the Psalms. Psalm 36, verse 6 is where we will start. Psalm 36, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Yahweh, O Lord. So think about what that's saying for a moment. It is, most obviously, a comparison of the righteousness of God to the mountains, okay, and uh, the judgments of God or the justice of God to the great deep, okay? Think about the oceans all the way down to the bottom, the Mariana Trench, right? Think about it this way, though. Why did God make mountains? Why did God fashion mountains and plop them onto planet Earth? So that we would have something to try and compare to His righteousness. And also because they're very pretty. Why did God make the depths of the ocean? So that we would have something to compare to His justice. It is, it is that deep, right? And so when, when, our, when our minds are searching for the highest thing we can think of, the deepest thing we can think of, that's what the psalmist is doing here. This God is beyond us, and that means when we seek to describe Him, it is perfectly appropriate to reach for the highest thing we can think of, the deepest thing we can think of, the most impressive and amazing and awe-inspiring things that we can think of, because that's what the psalms do. Look at Psalm 40, verse 5. This is another one. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The psalmist is overwhelmed by the prospect of attempting to tell about all that God has done. But the psalms help us to do that too. That is, tell of what God has done. It's not going to be up on the screen, but if, you, if you're familiar with Psalm 136, that's the one with your steadfast love endures forever after every verse almost. Uh, what, between the your steadfast love endures forever, you're getting the history of Israel. Right? So, so the, the Lord our God, uh, uh, we were oppressed in a foreign land, and he rose up and delivered us and parted the Red Sea and so on. It, it's the history of what God has done. So in Psalm 40, in 40 we, we read... Like, my words would fail me to try and tell about all that you have done. And yet, in 136, that's exactly what the psalmist does. I'm overwhelmed, but I'm still going to attempt it anyway. I think we should approach the Trinity in precisely this way. I am overwhelmed by the attempt to describe what God is like. And I'm still, with all humility going to try anyway. Now this has a strong value for us as we think about it, how we communicate it with each other and even how we communicate it with unbelievers. Instinctively we know that God is beyond us, right? Even, even if you have a really, really thin, shallow theology and the furthest you can get is talk about a higher power, even that language, like higher power means beyond me, right? But we often don't act like it. By way of example, where this can become especially clear is when we start talking about the problem of evil. 
So there, there's evil and pain and injustice and hardship that exists in the world. Right? After the fall into sin, it's been a mess. So what do we do with that if God says that he's in control of everything and if he loves us, right? And so the, the answer of unbelief to that question has been to say, well, you've you got to disqualify one of those two. Either he's not really in control of everything or he doesn't love us, okay? The problem with that is there's a rather large assumption that's being sneaked in <laughs> to, to the question, okay? And, and here's what it is. And if you think about it for a moment, uh, the, the, the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga put it this way. He said, if you and I go camping, right, and we've got the tents set up, and you ask me, could you go and check to see if there's a horse in my tent? Well, I suppose if you're really concerned about that, so I'm going to get up and I'm going to go peer inside the camping tent, and I will either confirm, no, there's not a horse in the tent, or you're going to hear me yell a lot louder, yes, there's a horse in your tent, right? And there's not really going to be any question about that because I don't want to put too fine a point on it, it's as big as a horse, okay? But if, you, if we were sitting by the tents and you asked me, could you go check and see if there are any gnats buzzing around in my tent? Well, that's going to be a good deal more difficult. I might look into the tent and squint for a while, and I'm probably going to come back out and say, I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Sorry, I can't help you with that. But they're really, really, really tiny and hard to see. The assumption that gets made when we observe acts of evil in the world, and we say, therefore, God must not be all-powerful or loving because there has to be a reason for this, right? And I can't see it. The, the problem there is you're assuming it's as big as the horse, right? And should be that level of obvious to you. The, 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 lo the logical philosophical problem then is if we're dealing with a God who is that far beyond us, as beyond us as the texts we've read so far have said, then the reasons might in fact be small as the gnats, and you just can't see them. And if we are dealing with an almighty God, logic demands that you account for that possibility. Okay? Furthermore, this fuels our worship. So that's something to think about. Furthermore, this fuels our worship. There's a reason we begin every Sunday morning service with let us worship the triune God. We start every Sunday morning service with those words. And there's a reason that the first words a person hears when they enter into this covenant family is I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This forms our identity as a people, knowing and being known by this God. And I've always found it to be remarkable that those are the words Jesus gave to us to use in baptism, as if to say, this is... This is the, 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 uh, the heralding word of knowing God that someone will need as they enter into this covenant family. Worship, then, is our response to the unfathomable grace of an unfathomable God. Right? Even as we seek to understand that grace, and even as our minds get blown by it, right? Can it be that I should gain, and, and, and so on. Amazing love, how can it be for, oh my God, it found out me. Worship is our response to the unfathomable grace of an unfathomable 
God. So that's God is beyond us. Second, I told you a God who loves us is the God we're dealing with. This is also well attested in the Psalms. And indeed, we find the word most often here is, is that Hebrew word chesed, which is often translated steadfast love or covenant love. Let's go to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, verse 5. But I have trusted in your, there it is, steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So this is a love we can trust. I didn't make that up. It's in the text, right? I have trusted in your steadfast love. Just as we learned last week in Psalm 117, all the nations are invited in to know and to revel in our God's steadfast love and faithfulness and truth that endures forever. Endures forever. Right? That's what steadfast means. This love and faithfulness and truth of our God endures forever. It's going to outlast you. Human love, the reason why that's so encouraging and why it's something we can really get our hands around is that human love is not so trustworthy, right? If human love were trustworthy, country music as a genre would not exist. <laughs> we tend to give our affection, kindness, to people that we like. It's human nature. We also tend to withhold it from people we don't like. Even then, we're not super consistent, right? Depending on which day of the week it is and the mood we're in. This is a product of the fall. It's why, by the way, Adam and Eve hid from each other. Because God called us good, but now I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust your love. I don't know if I can feel safe and secure with you. So I'm going to hide. This is why at weddings... We make promises, right, of permanent love. In the midst of all that stuff, they would threaten it. Yeah, better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, and in health, and so on. Into that trouble, into our heartache, our God says, you can sing about your trust in my steadfast love. It's not going anywhere. Psalm 31, verse 7. Gives us another glimpse of the love of God. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. So that's the, the reaction, the response. Because you have seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. This love calls up rejoicing. Why? Because God sees my affliction. Husbands and wives, one of the greatest ways you can extend love to one another is to take notice when the other is afflicted and distressed. I hear the psalmist is saying that causes him to rejoice because it's what God does for him. So e even if they're not ready to talk about it, husbands and wives, taking notice of it is a fundamental part of love and good communication. This is also true more broadly just in friendship, right? You might say it's one of the reasons for, for fellowship together. So, uh, why is like church online not enough? Why is, and, or, and I'll take it a step further, why is just showing up for a church service not enough? Right? I just show up, I'm here, I sing, I listen, I get out before anybody can talk to me. Right? Why, why doesn't that really work long term? Because the love of God is best imaged and given and if you will exchanged in a congregation of people who have spent enough time together to notice when the people around them are afflicted or distressed. 
You've known the distress of my soul. Being seen, being known. One of the great hopes that the, the Psalms and that the gospel gives us. Now this has strong value as we, as we talk to each other about it, even as we talk to unbelievers about it. I'm going to start with this reality. God is eternal. What that means, we tend to think of eternal life as life that lasts a really long time into the future, but, but eternality actually is, is forever in both directions. It's forever in the past, and it's forever toward the future, right? So when we say God is eternal, he mean, it means He's always existed, always been. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was in the beginning before anything else was. God has always been. There never was a time when He was not. Nothing came before Him. He will never disappear. Nobody made Him. He simply is and always has been. And we as creatures who, well, <laughs> are creatures, right? The word itself means created thing. We, we are things that have been made. We had a beginning. Everything we see around us, everyone we know around us had a beginning. God has no beginning. He simply always was and is. Now this raises an interesting point because in the New Testament, John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Wow. Because God is love. Right? God is love. Very familiar three-word spiritual aphorism we can take right from 1 John. Very well, okay. So I said God is eternal. If God has always been, and if God has always been love, then who did God love before creation? Okay, I'm going to say that again. If God has always been, and if God has always been love, then who did God love before creation? The Trinity helps us get at that question. Before creation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect love of one another. Perfect fellowship. Perfect gladness. Do you, I mean, do you notice how all your gladness in life is temporary? All of it's temporary. Even, even if you have like some goal or dream and it comes true precisely the way you want it. You wake up the next morning and you're still the same person. <laughs> You're still you, sorry. Same sins, same problems, same shortcomings. Gladness is temporary. And it, it's, it's good, we enjoy it. I'm not saying it's bad. When God grants it, we enjoy it. But we cannot imagine what it would be like to live perfectly satisfied, never disappointed, and to never get tired of that state. But this is the perfect harmony and fellowship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always enjoyed. If this was not true, if, that, if that's not true, then God has not always been love. Because, and, 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 and so he, he created us because He needed something to love. And then we have a needy God. And what Nietzsche figured out is that a needy God is not worthy of worship. Only the Trinity gives you a God who has always been love and who has always loved. And this fuels our worship. This fuels our doxology. Because God's love is inexhaustible. 
Right? There never was a time when he wasn't loved. How much more then can God love you, dear sinner, dear saint? His resources are inexhaustible. This fuels our worship because we never have to sing, thank you God for finally loving me when I become lovable. Thank you God for finally loving me when I finally stop sinning so much. Thank you God for finally loving me when I have started, gotten around to a particular good work or calling or vocation. Rather we can say and we can sing, thank you God for loving me for your love is so much deeper and wider and ancient and more glorious than, than the amount it would take to love me. And so, where have we been so far? This, this God who's beyond us, this God who loves us, and finally, this God who is victorious. This is well attested in the Psalms, and I think my favorite expression of it is in Psalm 110, right, which I've preached before. The Psalms, you know, often speak of the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, and Psalm 110 is probably the most famous uh, expression of it. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is the promise of the victory of Jesus. It is uh, so important perhaps that many commentators think that the book of Hebrews is in essence a sermon on Psalm 110. How cool is that? Psalm 110 describes the victory of Jesus as a triune victory. I'm so glad you asked how or why so I can show you. Yahweh says to my Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see the the, the promises of God's victory over evil and wickedness and wicked men and all sin and all death is a promise that is given in the context of an inter-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. When Peter quotes this psalm in Acts 2, what does he say? Let me show you. Peter addressing the crowd said, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned. So a prophet of God, God had sworn with an oath and foresaw the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this Son of God, God, God the Father, raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, there we are, Father, Son, and Spirit, He has poured out this Holy Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Did you catch it? Peter says that this is a promise that David spoke. So to go back to verse 32, that Jesus would be raised up by his Father so that the Holy Spirit could be poured out, that these very promises 
were the promises that the people of God had been singing about in Psalm 110. Okay? That this, this moment of, of Yahweh saying to Adonai, okay, be seated at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. That is the, that is the post-resurrection and ascension moment that David is foretelling. This has value for us as we preach it to each other, and this has value for us as we might share it with an unbeliever. How do I know that? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you not long to see the end of evil in the world? We all do. Regardless of what, I mean, that, that doesn't require that you're even a Christian. That just requires that you're a human. This is a longing that God has fixed in our hearts that we would see the end of evil in the world. Part of being a fallen people, children of, of Adam, is that we have the memory of perfection in our souls. When death and wickedness and destruction happen, your soul rages. It rages. Whether you're a Christian or not, your soul rages. Now, I would argue you don't have to be a Christian for your soul to rage at evil. I would argue that you do have to be a Christian for that rage to make consistent sense. But what the cross means for all of us is that Jesus is making an end of evil and sin and death. To use the language of Psalm 110, putting all his enemies under his feet. And dear saints, what the cross means is that Jesus is putting an end to evil and death and he does so now without making an end of you. Because if you prayed right now, Lord, wipe out all the evil in the world right now. Amen. The Almighty would be totally just to say, very well, we'll start with you. But the gospel is that the shed blood of Jesus now unites us to God the Son for all who believe. So that his death and judgment is your death and judgment. When he was buried, all your sins got buried with him. When he rose again, you rose again with him, but your sins did not. They stayed buried. And when he ascended with nail-scarred hands and entered into the heavenly places and heard his father say, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool, our seats, our places were forever secured with him. This fuels our worship because we realize that our worship is warfare. Well, I told you warfare was going to feature in the sermon. <laughs> when we gather together and invoke the name of our triune God, this is an act of war on all that is opposed to Him. When we pray to the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit and we say, as you just said, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking God to bring His heavenly reign to bear on every sphere of our earthly life and the earthly lives of all of our neighbors. The weapons of our warfare, however, are not carnal. They are mighty through God to bring down strongholds. They cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10. As one theologian has put it, when all the books are closed and the full history of this era is written, perhaps it will simply say this, that the world was conquered by God the Father in the name of God the Son by the empowering work of God the Holy Spirit. His people saw all their enemies brought low, 
with empowered words, clean water, fresh bread, and good wine. Those are the weapons of our warfare. Our worship services then, our worship services are not simply times where we just gather together, maybe to say some prayers and sing some songs. There's certainly not a time where we gather together so we can escape from the world. No. You've heard me say before, we've got a battering ram about which the princes and the rulers and the dark powers of this world know nothing. And every Lord's Day, we take another swing at their gates with it. And we do it while we laugh because our gladness is unassailable. We do it while we feast because He's prepared for us a table in the midst of our enemies. And we will do it while we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because this is how we advance. There's a great quote on this from John Piper, which I was going to put up on the screen, but I forgot. So just listen. John Piper says, Even though the victory belongs to God, the human means through which God gives victory is the holy ministry of the choir. And you dear congregation, are the choir. This is why we learn to sing and learn to sing together and learn to sing loud and learn to sing joyfully because God gives the victory through the ministry of the choir. And so in, as, I, as I draw this to a close, I began by saying that the Trinity gives us a God we cannot fully comprehend. That was true then, it's still true at the other end of the sermon. Yes, it is true that the Trinity gives you a God you cannot fully comprehend. But despite what the philosophical eggheads of this world may claim, full comprehension is not necessary for joyful confession. When we worship the triune God, we worship a God who is beyond us, a God who loves us, and a God who is victorious. And that is very good news. Thus, Praise and honor to the Father. Praise and honor to the Son. Praise and honor to the Spirit, ever three and ever one. One in might and one in glory, while the unending ages run. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So our Father, we ask that you would help us to learn at your feet to understand all that you've given us, to rejoice in it, even as we rejoice in a God who is beyond our understanding. We ask that you would help us to confess faithfully with all the breath that we have until our very last breath. Indeed, in Jesus' name, amen.